Welcome to the Startup Grind podcast. Startup Grind is the world's largest startup community, inspiring, educating, and connecting millions of entrepreneurs across the globe. These are the stories of disruptors, innovators, and game changers from the fastest high growth companies and venture capital firms in existence. Join us as we unpack their strategies, learn from their mistakes, and grow together. There is no time to wait, so let's begin. Today's episode is brought to you by Twilio. Twilio is a cloud communications platform used by Uber, Airbnb, Booking.com, and many more. Twilio provides you building blocks to add messaging, voice, and video to your web and mobile applications, SMS, voice, WhatsApp, and now email with their acquisition of SendGrid. Twilio runs an amazing program for startups. Shout out to our friend, good friend, Brendan Yell. That includes $500 getting started credit and access to exclusive webinars made for startups and the full support of the Twilio Startups team. You can sign up now at twiliostartups.com slash startupgrind. Thank you, Twilio. Hey, all. Welcome back. Startup Grind Global Podcast. And you're in for a treat today, well, as per every episode. Uh, But we have Alex Osterwalder. Um, I know you guys... Hopefully geeking out about this one, but uh, you know, famous for the you know the business model generation book, creating the business model canvas, value proposition design, all the stuff that's helping us to innovate. Um, and we have him talking about his new book, The Invincible Company. And um, but for those of you that don't know, um, Dr. Alexander Osterwalder is one of the most influential innovation experts and a leading author, entrepreneur, in-demand speaker. We got him. We got him. Uh, Whose work has changed the way established companies do business and how ventures get started. We had a great chat with him around, you know, you know, the, the putting the theory into practice and, 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 and all the learnings from, you know, consulting for hundreds of companies since he, you know, he, he put that kind of methodology out in the world. Uh, he was ranked number four in the top 50 management thinkers worldwide and is known for simplifying the strategy development process and turning complex concepts into digestible digestible visual models, which I, I personally love how, how visual all the books are. He invented the business model canvas, value proposition canvas, and business portfolio map, practical tools that are trusted by millions business practitioners from leading global companies um the new book the invincible company check it out as well um and um and uh, and also check out strategize if you have not already which has a lot of these resources um that we'll refer to hope you enjoy the interview cheers welcome alex welcome to the startup growing podcast i'm very proud to to have you with us how you doing great to be here and how, how how's everything going in, in your neck of the woods? Where, where are you joining me from? I'm joining you from my office in Switzerland, in the French-speaking part of Switzerland. Right, right. So not a bad view, I, I take it? <laughs> no, well, from my office right now, it's not the best view, but uh, yeah, it's always good around here. You have the mountains, you have the lake, so it's it's not the worst place on the planet to be. <laughs> Absolutely. And And just in terms of... COVID and stuff is is everyone locked down and I mean I know everyone's getting sick of no, hearing so about Switzerland, it. No, so Switzerland, yeah, Switzerland had more of a semi-lockdown, so it was uh, not strict. I mean they closed down big events and and uh, small gatherings, but it wasn't that we were locked up. 
And now it's uh, slowly, slowly opening again. Next week, even uh, events of 300 people can take place. So it's it's really uh, it's really opening up. So I'm curious to see, you know, what the impact is going to be. If there's going to be a spike in new uh, sicknesses, we'll see. We'll see how this goes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, in Australia, my kids went back to school this week. Um, so oh, wow. uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that was good. Um, God bless my wife. You can work again. <laughs> you can work again. <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right. So look, I, um, I, this is really interesting to me, and as as it is, I think for a lot of entrepreneurs out there, um, you know, given, you know, our reliance, I suppose, on on the business model canvas, and now you know the new book, the Invincible Invincible Company. But I, I always like to go back a little bit, and and you know, just kind of set the scene, you know, give a give a little context for the audience. So, so did you did you grow up in Switzerland? Was there a Mother or father that was an entrepreneur is usually how far I go back. <laughs> so my, my father was actually a manager at a Swiss company called Sulzer and uh, uh, probably very entrepreneurial. I mean, I was too small to really get it then, but he has very entrepreneurial soul. But I didn't grow up in an entrepreneur's family. On the, you could say my grandmothers were entrepreneurs because they had their cafes and their restaurants. So that is probably one of the toughest businesses to be in, you know, small Absolutely. scale entrepreneurship and pretty tough. So maybe that's a little bit the background. So I grew up in Switzerland, uh, five years in Canada when I was a kid from two to seven, then back to Switzerland um, in the German speaking part. And now I live in the French speaking part of Switzerland. Yeah, impressive. So you speak a few languages, I take it? Only three. Um, I'd love to speak more. That's my biggest frustration that I don't take the time to learn more languages. So my kids are probably going to outdo me pretty soon. Yeah, that's that's okay. Well, it's much better than you know Australian, which is uh, you know English with a lot of swearing. <laughs> that's the second language. But you know we grow up with it, so it's not it's not as if we had a big merit. It's just part of uh, the Swiss culture. We have four national languages, wow. and we have to learn two. And then generally we get English on top, so we kind of just grow up with it, right? So we fall into it. We're lucky. <laughs> and and what what was the education? So um, I did business studies, then I went uh, did political science, and then back to business. Did a PhD in in business, actually on business models. Right. But always really liked the practical side, so I didn't stay in academia. I went right out into practice. But I'm always, always uh, continued my love for the topic of business models and how to create better institutions. And would you just drive your bosses crazy with the be a better way to do things? <laughs> I never had bosses. I'm no. unemployable, so <laughs> I, I don't think I could really. I think I had, I had probably one technical boss once. Was number two in an organization, uh, a not-for-profit that we scaled. And uh, yeah, at one point, it didn't really work out that well. Um, and then my second boss was actually Yves Pigneur, my uh, longtime co-author, good friend and mentor. Um, but he was never the typical kind of boss, so it wasn't wasn't that hard. But otherwise, I was always an entrepreneur. And then, so was um, how did you get like the you know the practical learning to or you know I'm assuming there was some pain that was felt at some point that you know was was there um, pain there or you just kind of saw like a you know something that was missing from from studying it so i always did you know little projects entrepreneurial projects but without really creating a company and we did technically create a company a long time ago called net finance mm -hmm. it was just you know 
the love of starting things and creating stuff and creating value for others. But then when I started my PhD, it was on the topic of business models um, with Yves Pinier. He was looking for a doctoral student who could, uh, you know, the, the initial idea was could we create some kind of computer-aided design for business people like uh, architects have computer-aided design or engineers have computer-aided design. And to do that, you'd need some more rigorous kind of way of looking at business models mm -hmm. uh, rather than business plans. So that was the starting point. Uh, now we're kind of making that reality with that strategizer, but it was really this idea, can we help business people? At the time, it was purely entrepreneurs. Could we help them sketch out their ideas faster in order to think them through and change them constantly? Because we didn't really believe the business plan was a good tool for entrepreneurship. Yeah. And that's how the whole thing started. And then it took off because we made it pretty simple and practical. I think that's always been a trademark. Mm -hmm. And uh, we weren't the first to talk about that, but then that took off and the, the rest is history. So explain explain this to me, please. It was just like, so, um, I mean, I want to get, you know, circle back to Steve Blank and, and, and everything else and how it exploded. But um, I, I'm, I'm a, was it just trying to define... Um, you know, it is simply as possible. How did it kind of become this one-page thing? <laughs> and then I'll talk about the the ph yeah. the phenomenon. Yeah, it it was actually back then. So I started my doctoral dissertation in the year two thousand. It was a academic project, and we again we were not the first to talk about business malls to write about business malls. But but what we did is we took everything out there that had you know anything that had the word business mall in it. There were a couple of models out there. People had different definitions. We took anything that would in any way or another try to model the enterprise, not the the process side, but really the business logic side. And we synthesized that into a simple concept, which you know had a complicated name. It was called the business model ontology. And because um, even myself, we were always influenced by design thinking, by visual thinking, mm -hmm. we also had that you know kind of let's make it simple, let's not keep it academic, let's not make it complicated. We infused that design thinking and visual aspect into it, and that's kind of how the business model emerged out of my doctoral dissertation, which was called the, the business model ontology. Complicated word, so you get the doctoral title. <laughs> yeah. And then after that, we made it very practical, just because it was out there. And uh, it was, you know, it was funny, before even meeting Steve Blank, and that led to meeting Steve Blank, the, the whole inventor of the, the Lean Startup Movement, I put my dissertation online, and people started downloading it. That's the last thing you expect when you put a doctoral dissertation online that people download it. But that, that's what happened. On the other hand, we published um, the more accessible book, Business Small Generation. And the funny story goes is that Steve Blank read my PhD and he tried to convince his uh, uh, teaching assistant back then, Anne Moirako, to read the PhD. And she said, no, 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 look, I have this, <laughs> this book, Business Small Generation. They were actually talking about the same thing. So it's funny. And then um, in 2010, I think, I went to, to um, Stanford and met Steve, and that's how we became good friends. So it's like two movements in parallel that found together because we were talking about very, very similar aspects. Can you, um, um, can you give me the 30-second pitch for anyone that's not familiar with the Business Model Canvas, what it is and how it works? So it's a very simple strategic tool that allows you to sketch out how you create, deliver, and capture value. 
just allows you to visualize your business model. And the reason you want to do this is because sometimes things in your head might be clear, but you need to share language. You need to map this out with your team, in particular when you start to grow. That's one aspect. Mm -hmm. And the second aspect, and this is more around the new book, you know, I think it's, it's harder and harder to compete on products, technology, and price. And if that's all you do, you're probably going to fail pretty quickly after a first success. What you really want to do is build a superior business model around, you know, great products, technology, and services. But that's just not enough anymore. So we really believe you need to start thinking business models. What's a better business model rather than just thinking product, technology, or service, or price? It's not enough. It's it, everybody's going to copy you, so you're not going to stay ahead for a very long time. And and was this like a matter of um, once you kind of you know came up with the uh, you know the canvas itself, were you um, kind of you know reverse engineering companies and and putting them through there, or were you working with you know companies um, at the time to kind of crash test it? How did how did it how did you you know, get it to the, to the point that you're ready to publish? Yeah, at the, at the beginning, when it was still academic research, we tested, you know, it's a, this, this movement in academia called design science. It's beside the quantitative and qualitative stuff in management information systems where I kind of grew up. Um, there was this design science movement. And if you create an artifact, a tool, like the business model canvas, back then it was called the business model ontology. It was a little bit more... Um, rigorous and academic, we tested it you know, and pivoted, if you want, you know, until it became as practical and as simple as possible. So it didn't come out of you know, just our genius or so. No, we really, really tested it, stress tested it, until it became the simplest version possible. So if you Google you know, business model ontology, you'll find some of the older versions. Yep. So we tested it. And afterwards, of course, we, you know, we, we saw people using it. That was the one thing. But when we write books, we try to pick the most, um, the best cases to really learn. So not all of those cases use the business model canvas because sometimes the cases that use it are not the best to learn for various reasons, like aspirational or you know they didn't come as big as the biggest companies. Now it's the other way around. Now we can easily choose from a lot of companies that are are using it. But um, you have to do both, right? You have to take some of the cases that, that worked out there and you have to you use some really, really nice illustrative cases because they, they inspire people, they get people to follow. And um, that's kind of what we did. And um, just trying to show the best cases out there when it comes to business model innovation. And, and, and you know, you touched on the design of it, right? Which is very, you know, was a big draw for me when I originally got the book, right, and and same with the Invincible Company here, was is this from Design Science or was this like your your partner or where was the like the need um, to not be you know to be quite visual and um, and uh, almost looks like you had an illustrator on board and and like a team of designers to kind of um, get the aesthetics the way you had. How did how did that evolve? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, the, the design part of our books is actually insanely expensive. So from the beginning, uh, we always had a visual part. And that's how, you know, when we started out, even myself, we were always visual people. And it's not visual to put lipstick on the pig. It's really to simplify things down. They're just things you can't describe with words. It's better, to, you know, you better describe them with a diagram, with visuals. 
So we use words where words make sense and we use visuals where visuals make sense to create, you know, the best, I like to call it best um, user interface and user experience of a book. Personally, I believe too many books have too many words. <laughs> they could be slimmed down um, to their essence and they could be slimmed down to a couple of core concepts and then it would be easier to get through them. So I'm not a big fan of, of most uh, um, business book formats. I like the content. I'm a big fan of business book content, but I'm not a great fan of the format. So we tried just to do our very best in creating the most practical user experience of business books that we could think of. And we self-published. That's why we were able to do it, because not all publishers like visuals. Um, when we sold our first book, Business Small Generation, and then the, the following books to Wiley, um, I asked them, well, would you have allowed us to make a four-color visual landscape book? <laughs> and uh, Richard said, no chance, because you did everything wrong. <laughs> yeah. So sometimes you need to, to do things wrong in the eyes of the incumbent because they're just the right thing to do. What even I did, and then Alan Smith, now my co-founder and then designer, uh, joined us. What we did is create a book that we would love to buy. And of course, you always need to think, you know, beyond your little personal market, what's mass marketable. But it seems that um, you know people really wanted a visual book like that. And then it's inspired, and that's the funnest thing to to watch. Inspired a whole new generation of business authors that. Uh, shamelessly copied our format and, and that's great because that's a compliment right the more people that copy our stuff the better because then it shows wow we were onto something and now you know I, I selfish self in a, in a very egoistic way I get I try to get business authors to make visual books because I like consuming visual books so the more people you know go get away from text only the happier I am fantastic and and then and then you know sk you know skipping back to um, Steve Blank and, and it becoming a phenomenon. How, how did, you know, like, okay, to explain this kind of, um, you know, I'm guessing these surreal moments and and the evolution of, you know, I guess pu public, getting published through to probably a life of consulting that you perhaps weren't prepared for or, you know, um, how, how did it all come about? Oh, how, so, what was, sorry, you know, post, post <laughs> Steve, post Steve finding it, sorry. <laughs> So with, uh, you know, putting these things together was like two movements, right? Steve was working on transforming entrepreneurship, launched the customer development movement, and then the lean startup movement And Eric Ries put, put, you know, um, built on top of that and made it popular around the world. So we kind of put these things together. And then for, 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 for me, the question was, once we had a practical book out there that sold in the millions, okay, what next? Do I want to do consulting? Uh, probably not because I already had a consulting firm with a colleague before and I was really interested in building software but naively never having built software we started off and you know did something that worked it was an iPad app put it out there a couple of hundred thousand people bought, paid thirty dollars wow. um, to to use this iPad app and it was fun to see you know that it that it worked people wanted some digital experience but at the same time we knew you can't build a business model based on a transactional um, business of, of charging $30 for an app, right, in a niche market. So we moved to the web app, and that's where things started to become complicated. We realized, oh, okay, um, making a, building a web app is not the same as an iPad app, slightly more complicated. Um, we learned a lot out of that, 
And then what we learned is that companies are a bit slower to transform than we expected because we were not targeting the, the, the startup market. I think it's a terrible market to be in. Selling to startups is probably the worst business model possible, <laughs> except if you're a VC. Yeah, that works. Um, yeah. So we went, we went into the market for established companies and um, realized that software will take a little bit more time until you know, they work like that. So we started helping transform established companies around the world. Got clients like MasterCard, Nestle, GE, and so on, and helped them in the transformation aspect while using um, software and uh, cloud-based learning, online courses, to help them transform. So that's you know what, what you learn is, oh, you have to adapt your business model. So if you have a long-term vision, our long-term vision didn't change with Strategizer. It's to help transform organizations with technology and uh, conceptual tools. But what you have to accept is that sometimes you have to change the path to make that vision reality. And you go from one business model to another. So I, I love this example of Netflix, right? When they started out, the co-founders knew they wanted to do streaming video, but there was no chance the infrastructure was ready. The world wasn't ready for streaming video because of the infrastructure. Mm -hmm. um, so, so they started out with mail order. And that was their first business model in order to get into the market, in order to learn, but always keeping this longer-term vision you know, in mind. And it's inspiring to see or to watch those entrepreneurs that don't, you know, they stick to their vision, but they change the steps and they're very practical to see the patterns in the market to understand how can we move forward. And I think that's the difference between those who blindly stick to a vision and try to execute something that is actually, you know, to quote Steve Blank, there's a fine line between vision and hallucination. You actually have to be very aware when to stop or when to change. And sometimes you need to kill a baby, right? Mm -hmm. You can't. You can't pivot yourself to success. Some projects are just too early, technology-wise or market-wise, and you have to kill them. And you have to move to something else. So that's more extreme than even a pivot. Sometimes you need to give the money back to investors. And not all first-time entrepreneurs are mature enough to do that, and they go under with their idea rather than pulling the plug a bit earlier. And so, you know, now that you you, you head out into the market, you're, you're you know, you're... you're in front of the biggest companies and exec teams in the world, um, teaching you know your own uh, methodology. Um, so I'm guessing that that was pretty daunting in itself in, in the early days. Um, so I'm curious to see how uh, you know what happens after that. Right? Is it is it a matter of now you get to crash test your own theories and you know take a lot of learning that then goes into this book how does it like um you know the the, the yeah. uh, theory versus practice i guess yeah it's it's interesting right because so when you put stuff out there in a book it looks very published and it looks like oh creative genius right we knew it from the beginning that's not true, right? We, that's why we wrote four books because we constantly build on top of what we, you know, got right at the beginning and what we learned after publishing a book. So, the very first time I was able to work with a large company was with a company in Germany, a travel company called Tui, and I had to pitch the business model canvas to the CFO, to the chief financial officer. Mm -hmm. And I thought, oh, my goodness, this guy's going to kick me out of the room because this tool is <laughs> is very simple, right? And this is a guy managing billion-dollar business. 
So it turned out it was the other way around. He said, wow, this is great because we can now visualize everything on one, you know, one piece of paper, right? We can really think, think back to our story. What's the business model of our organization? So that was an eye-opener because that's what we believed, but I haven't worked so far then with uh, established companies. And then I started to get a little bit more confident and you know, start working with bigger organizations. But then you also realize where are the holes in your thinking and how do you need to adapt it? And, and it's never been, oh, we need to change the business model canvas or so because you know, no surgeon um, does heart surgery with a Swiss army knife that does everything. No, you need a series of tools and processes. So we just started to build you know, a, a real um, um, tool stack of different conceptual tools and we would take the best thinking out there and where there were no tools, we created new ones like the value proposition canvas, the portfolio map. And we started to constantly adapt what we knew and what we didn't know and make it better and better and better and just build that technology and uh, conceptual stack. So it's not that you figure it out like that and you just have to change the way you, you, know, you show up confident. So no, we continue to expand the methodology and based on what we've seen, you know, we did wrong or the companies weren't doing yet. And I believe, so sometimes business thinkers, you know, they lash out and say, oh, these uh, managers, they don't get it or so. I think it's the other way around. The business thinkers are not doing their job bringing the best and simplest tool to the market so that, that the practitioners can adopt them. So I really believe in this idea that methodologies have to be simple and practical, but not simplistic, right? So you have to simple mm -hmm. them down and you have to create this kind of tool set. And then you'll see companies will start to adopt. So that was our experience, that by building on top of the things that were there, companies would get really excited and, and start adapting, adopting these tools um, in a bigger, more strategic context. But it takes time. You, you, really have to, you really have to adapt what you're doing, how you're spreading the message by listening to the market, by listening to your customers. In our case, it's, it's senior managers um, and if you don't do that, guess what? You're going to go under. There's no way you can convince anybody of anything. All you can do is you can try to change their thinking, try to change their framing. So I'm convinced you can't convince anybody of anything. Yeah, look, so on that, right, I was going to segue a, a little bit differently. But on that, right, that is, um, you know, sometimes a, a mammoth task, especially in these large, um, in a, you know, large corporates where um it you know you're trying to get this big transformation to take place is that you know i've heard different sides of this is this is this a top-down thing does it have to be from top down is it a matter of getting minimal everyone on board how, how does a company that's you know um big um you know make successfully make this transformation it's actually bottom-up and top-down. And I think the bottom-up movement has started, you know, 10 years ago with the work of Steve Blank, Eric Ries, us um, getting teams to work the right way. So that's number one, but that's not enough, right? Mm -hmm. Because otherwise you're just a startup in chains because you're starting to work like a startup. You're uh, flexible, but the funding doesn't work yet the way it should. Uh, the metrics are geared towards execution. So you also need the top-down. But the top down in established companies, you know, we really need to convince leaders, you know, how innovation works. It's very different from management. Managing the existing and inventing the new, those are two different professions. So you have to create those foundations. We call it exploit and explore. 
continue to be really good at managing what you have, but now start to create an ecosystem where new ideas can thrive, where you can explore, where you can experiment, where you can fail a lot. In execution, failure is not an option, and that's okay. It shouldn't be, right? When you're managing a supply chain or a factory or nuclear plant, you know, experimentation is maybe a little bit dangerous. On the other hand, you know, when you're inventing new business models, you need to have that kind of space to, to explore. And that's where leaders need to create the conditions for teams to flourish, right? They don't pick the best ideas. It's a big myth. It's about the idea. No, it's not. And it turns out, you know, you, you need to almost create a, a startup ecosystem within because if you look at early stage venture capital, only one out of 250 ideas, one out of 250 becomes a big thing, an outlier, which means that as an established company, you need to constantly invest in hundreds of projects small amounts of money, but then only do follow-up investments in those ideas that show traction. So you have to apply the mechanisms of venture capital, and that's the top-down part. The bottom-up part is that um, these teams need to operate like entrepreneurs, like startups. These are startups within. And what we're seeing in some of the companies is they're mixing internal um, teams and ventures and external startups because you need to do both. There's no one recipe, but what there is is this ecosystem design that you need to get right? And there, there are a couple of ground rules that we now understand. Yeah, can you can you dig a bit deeper on that? Because as you're saying that, I'm kind of, you know, uh, remembering a conversation I had with uh, um, a guy that was head of innovation for Vodafone and um, Australian guy in a, um, Warwick Kramer, and um, and he would say that some, you know. He he would he, he had the budget he wanted and he'd be off to the side, um, but then and, and they got to, you know were doing wonderful things and they kind of bring it back to the business. But there was also this um, maybe it's politics I guess is the word, but this kind of resentment to the cool um, startup group that got to to you know do what they want and didn't have to obey to the the rules of the company. Is there a way to yeah, yeah is there a way to kind of you know, foster. Oh, absolutely. Take yeah, it, absolutely. It so, no, that's a very good point, and I, I think it shows that in many companies, uh, there there are a couple of challenges. The first one is is that exploit and explore, managing the existing and inventing the new, is not a true partnership. It should be a true partnership, where those who invent understand they're financed by the core business. So sometimes those who are inventing new things kind of get arrogant and say, oh, those old farts over there. But they yeah. kind of forget that they're getting funded by you know, the core business, which was around for decades sometimes. On the other hand, those who are in the core business and managing the existing, sometimes a dying business model maybe, they need to understand that the other ones are inventing the future and that there have to be different rules because if the rules are the same, um, actually you can't innovate. So – we need to create a true partnership between exploit and explore. And that's the challenge today is that innovators still call themselves pirates and rebels, which I think is pure stupidity because in history, you know, we see what do we do with pirates? We hang them, we kill them, and, and rebels the same thing. So it's, it's stupid to say, oh, we're breaking the rules. No, the rules are wrong. You need to fix the rules. So when a company really gets it right, they create an ecosystem where the explorers can actually draw on the exploiters in the sense that you, they can use the supply chain, they have access to customers, they can use the brand, 
but it needs to be a true partnership. And that is what leaders need to create. If the leadership doesn't create that partnership, that harmony, and you know, continues to call the innovators pirates and rebels, guess what? Everybody's gonna try to kill those pirates and rebels. So that's, that's when you, you still have, and I think Steve Blank coined this term, but now Rita McGrath, and Columbia scholar and myself, we use it a lot. It, you see innovation theater. Tons of money, tons of activity, but it's not designed into the strategy. So in our new book, we really show that you need to, as a leader, A, create the ecosystem, but B, also give strategic guidance what that portfolio looks like because then the new ideas will really fit into the strategy and everybody in the company will support them. If the those who are managing don't explore those, don't support those who are exploring, and those who are exploring don't understand that they need those who are managing because they need access. If that doesn't work as a partnership, you're dead. You can stop innovation. And I unfortunately think too many companies are still stuck in innovation theater. There's mm-hmm. probably no company on the planet that doesn't do innovation, but it's not it's it's not the real thing, right? It's not integrated into the strategy. But that's changing. That's the good news. We're now seeing companies that are really, really fundamentally changing because they understand it's not just about the money and it's not about funding rebels and pirates. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm going to get um, back to the book, and I know Exploit and Explore um, and uh, is from, from the new book. And um, and my apologies, you know, with the COVID situation, I haven't got the, um, the paperback yet. Uh, Terry was kind enough to be sending that, but... Um, um, but before before I dive into the book, um, what are some of the wins? You know, as I'm, you know, it, it's it's so your methodology is so ingrained that you know when I, you know, I do some work with startup bootcamp, they use it. You know, accelerators around the world are using it. Um, every, this is like the go-to, right? How does um, what were some of the wins along the way that you were terribly proud of? Was it the was it the day that Slack came and said that they, they used the business model canvas when they got started? What are, what are some of the stories that people wouldn't know about um, the wins you've seen? Yeah. yeah. So, you know, I rarely look at those wins and say, oh, I'm proud of this. Now, I, I, need, I needed to learn that a little bit so we could celebrate victories as a, as a team at Strategizer. I always look at what's still missing. What's still missing? Why are the established companies not innovating the way we'd like to see them because that's what drives me forward to mm-hmm. continue. Because again, you know, if, if companies use the business model canvas as a shared language, great. And that's really fun to see that it is transforming um, the way people work. And you know, at conferences, it, it is very, it makes me proud when people walk up and say, Alex, you really changed my life. And then I ask, well, why? You know, just created the tool and wrote a book and so but um, it does move people, and that also um, um, drives me forward. You need those little messages every now and then because creating new stuff is hard, right? You get it, you get it wrong a hundred times until you get it right once, and every now and then a message that gets that makes you proud is great. But on the other hand, it's what drives me as an entrepreneur and inventor of new business tools is what's still missing, right? How do we actually really get people to do this? And I think. A lot of those incubators, accelerators, and companies are using these tools, not necessarily always in the best way. So we, we're not doing our job perfectly well yet. And sometimes there are new tools that we need to add to the mix so people can go forward. So that's what drives me most, right? <laughs> Seeing 
oh, shoot, why can't we get this big corporation that we're working with, why can't we get them to change? What are we doing wrong? I never blame them. I always blame us because business tools and books are just products and services, right? So if you're not seeing the results you want, well, then your products and services are not as great as they should be. So we constantly try to change and innovate. So, yeah, it's good to be proud every now and then. But then what, what makes you know what makes an invincible company from our re- research we see is those companies that constantly try to reinvent. They don't just say, wow, we made it. Like Amazon, look at Jeff Bezos. A lot of things we can criticize about Amazon and Jeff Bezos. But on the other hand, you know, they're getting it right again and again and again. And guess why? Because they're obsessed uh, by going out of business. Uh, Jeb Bezos publicly says, Amazon is going to die. We need to constantly reinvent ourselves so we can push it out you know, a little bit longer. And that's why they're so successful. Um, you can't be comfortable for too long. I do think you need to celebrate victories. And I do think you know, we don't have to overdo it. But you can't be comfortable for too long. You need that attitude of day one. So I really believe in that. So I don't like, like to talk about too often about the things we're proud of because then we get complacent and lazy yeah the everyday days one absolutely um so let's talk about the new book um what what has been you know um you know the the reason that you've you you know you're still getting excited about this stuff and what some of the what's something that um you know your past readers are gonna you know enjoy about the about the new book and what you know? What are, what are the takeaways? I suppose without without giving too yeah. much away, we still want everyone to buy yeah, yeah. the Invincible Com- Company. Oh, we give a lot away. You can actually get a quarter <laughs> of the book for free if you if you go to our website. You can you can download a quarter of our book. We believe in freemium, so we give away always one quarter of our books, um, and then you can get a teaser. But you know, I think that the the, the interesting thing about this book it's it's almost three or four books in one. Um, there are two big topics or three maybe that you know um, are interesting for people. The one aspect that's almost like back to the roots is the pattern library that we created in the book and that's for startups and for established companies alike. We still see companies mainly competing on product service and technology innovation and price and we just don't think it's enough, right? Mm-hmm. So we created a pattern library like in design or in architecture or in software, patterns that you can get inspiration from. How can you build superior business models as a startup or as an established company? Uh, so for when you're a startup, we created these invent patterns so you can lock in customers, right? So you can become more scalable. So nice. similar aspects across businesses. The second one is what we call shift patterns. How can you move from one business model to another, from product to service, from high-tech to low-tech, from low-tech to high-tech, right? Because you can do, you can do it in several directions, from low-touch to high-touch, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So we believe in that a lot, that we still need to push people to compete on superior business models. That's one aspect that people, I think, really will enjoy. The second one is really when we said, hmm, established companies, small and big, are not yet really good at reinventing themselves. So we created a new tool called the Portfolio Map, and we help companies understand how they can manage a portfolio of projects in order to constantly reinvent themselves, because that's what characterizes successful companies. Today, it's not enough to find one great business model. It's definitely not enough to find one great product or value proposition. You need to reinvent yourself. 
And then in the last part of the book, we show what is the culture you need to put in place? How do you create an innovation culture in order to achieve that? So it's really three to four books in one, and you'll find a lot of things. It's uh, around 400 pages, and we try to give away as much as we can in terms of practical knowledge and tools. So um, startup entrepreneurs, innovation project leads, all the way to senior leaders, so they can really apply this stuff. Because I don't believe um, you should you should have to translate a business book into practice. You should you should be able to take it from the book and apply it one one. So would you say that the patent library is almost like a, some templates you can start with? Excuse me, sorry. Uh, the patent library is that almost like some like templates from other businesses you can. You yeah, can start with it's it's exactly right. So take the the I'll take an old example so it's easy to explain without the visuals. Mm-hmm. You know when Steve Jobs launched the iPod, everybody saw technology innovation, right? Because he pulled this thing out of his pocket on stage and said, "It's the first time you could put thousand songs in a pocket," which was amazing because it was a push in terms of technology. What people didn't realize when Apple and Steve Jobs launched the iPod. It was actually a business model strategy. What, what they were thinking of is if, if you get everybody to put their music library into iTunes, onto the iPod, guess what? It's going to be very hard to get that music out of the software and device again. So next time they're going to buy a music player, they're automatically going to go back to Apple because they'll be too lazy to switch to a different platform. That is what you call, we call those gravity creators. They create gravity. They lock you in, you know, with more or less gravity, they lock you in because they create switching costs. That is a strategy that is very simple and too few companies actually use. I know a lot of product companies, they never even think of creating switching costs. And guess what? That means that their customers are going to switch because they're staying stuck in a transactional model. So we have, we have nine of those to show people how you can get inspiration. And then there's these sub-flavors. How can you build better business models? The iPod was genius, not because of the technology innovation, but because it was a business small strategy. I believe that was the foundation of the Apple empire because the iPhone just built right on top of that, right? And I think more companies um, need to, more startups and established companies need to use these business small patterns if they want to stay alive for longer, because it's hard enough to get any competitive advantage or transient advantage, like Rita McGrath likes to call it. So you have to really draw on these business small patterns. Great entrepreneurs have intuitively been doing some of these. So all we're doing is codifying it from the great cases out there so anybody can copy them a lot faster, so you can learn them a lot faster. I believe in codifying business knowledge, just like we can code software, I think we can start coding business a little bit more rather than leaving it all to intuition and long-term learning because otherwise you're only going to get it right the fourth or fifth time you build a company. Well, maybe we can codify knowledge enough so first-time entrepreneurs can get it right faster. Well, that's like everyone can use any advantage they can get. Um, and then the, uh, the the shift patterns, right? If I'm – Yeah. So I would say is so, this, this is more for the for the corporates. So it is, um, but at the same time, what we're seeing in the market, and I'm sure you're seeing the same thing, mm-hmm. is that startups increasingly, after two or three years, once they really found a first business model yeah. and they got a foothold market, 
sometimes they have to shift pretty quickly and dramatically because the market is changing or because their technology is expiring. So mm-hmm. even for young companies, the shift patterns are becoming very, very important. And you know, sometimes you actually might, as a startup, think in, in one or two steps and say, I'm going to do this business model first in order to shift to a different business model in the third, fifth, or sixth year. So while, yes, it's definitely more for established companies, you know, shifting from one business model to a new one, it's becoming a real- reality for younger companies as well. But the, the main idea there is you have a business model and you want to shift to a superior one, um, you know, from product to service or from, uh, from low touch to high touch. Or what my favorite one is very counterintuitive. Everybody would do from low tech to high tech. But what about from high tech to low tech? So you know, take the Nintendo Wii. When they launched the Nintendo Wii, it was technology-wise, it was an inferior technological platform, game console. The graphics and the processing speed was inferior, but they found a superior business model. They were tackling the, the, the market of casual gamers, an underexplored market, and they created a great value proposition around that and a very profitable business model. While everybody was losing money on game consoles because they were subsidizing them, the Xbox and the Sony PlayStation 2 at the time, they were starting to earn money because they shifted the market into this blue ocean. So, you know, it's the counterintuitive stuff that is very powerful. So you don't just want to think of the obvious. People often ask, Alex, Alex, what's the magic business model? There is no magic formula. It is innovation, creativity. You have to find the best business model for your context, uh, for your you know, market, for your country, for whatever you're doing, maybe even for your organization, and that will allow you to thrive. Don't, don't just settle with copying others right, in your industry mm-hmm. because that's going to just you know, continue a red ocean. And that's what I'm excited about is in how do you break out and maybe copy a business model from a completely different industry into yours. That's exciting. Does it, is this like, um, you know, sorry to keep going on the corporate thing, but is this how you also can, you know, flag the need for change with, you know, in terms of, um, you know, when, 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 we, when you study disruption and, and these kind of, um, um, you know, these, you know, the case studies, it's, it's, it's quite obvious, right? But how do you, you know, when, you, you know, from your experience working with these big companies and you walk into Kellogg's and there's the, you know, hundreds of years of heritage on the wall and the, the plates and the old cereal boxes. How do you, yeah. how do you, yeah, how do you stop? How do you get the, you know, uh, get past the, the fear? Well, you know, it, it starts with, with leadership. Um, and this is where it is. Part of the game is top down. If you don't get the senior leadership and the board, um, to really, to really support this in a very big way, not just lip service, mm-hmm. you're dead, right? You, you, there won't be any change. So that means the CEO or a co-CEO needs to spend 40 to 60 percent of his or her time on innovation. So a good example is Ping An, um, the Chinese company. You know, they were um, an insurance and banking conglomerate before they decided to become a, a tech company. And that was the founder, Peter Ma, who said, we're going to die. Banking and insurance is dead because the technology companies are going to eat us up. So guess what he did? He said, we need to become a technology company 
And that means we need to create an entire ecosystem to do that. He hired a lady called Jessica Tan to become co-CEO and responsible for innovation. So it wasn't innovation theater. It was a serious power center, right? Because power is what innovation lacks. It's not the activity. Activity is usually there. But, you know, many chief um, um, entrepreneurs or, or heads of innovation, they report to the person who reports to the person who reports to the person who reports to the CTO. And, and the CTO is mainly concerned about managing the existing technologies. So guess what? You're not going to get innovation. So hmm. you have to have that top down. Now, you can't, again, you can't convince leaders unless they're they are willing to go in that direction unless they understand the world is being disrupted. And that's where COVID-19, with all of the terrible aspects that come with it, and the suffering and pain and economic suffering, it's also a great opportunity because everybody was disrupted. Only few in a positive way, like Netflix or Zoom maybe, very many in a difficult way, and that's an eye-opener. And now I think is the time where a lot of senior leaders are open to changing their organization. Many, many will actually start to understand they need to become resilient. So the fear of not doing anything is slowly outgrowing the fear of actually innovating. I think it's still, innovation is still a bit of a black box. So we need to help senior leaders um, open up this black box so they can go beyond just mergers and acquisitions. Mergers and acquisitions is the traditional thing that leaders do uh, because they have, they have a checklist, they have lawyers, it's easy to do. Yeah. What we now need to do is open that black box so we can really get innovation and entrepreneurship to flourish in established companies. That's At the end of the day, why do that? Because it's value creation. We'll create more value for customers, mm -hmm. for the company, and for society if it's done right. So I really believe you know, we can help these companies uh, do a better job and you know, contribute to uh, better workplaces and ultimately, I believe, also to a better society. Absolutely. And do you see, you know, you mentioned COVID, just, you know, to end kind of on a high note, is is there an explosion of entrepreneurship around the corner? Well, I, I imagine it's, I, I think it's already yeah. starting, but uh, go yeah, on. Unfortunately, <laughs> un unfortunately, some of it is because people have to, out of necessity, yeah. they're going to become entrepreneurs because there were a lot of layoffs. So you'll see a lot of that. That's not a positive side, I'd say. Mm. That's when, when the state is not supporting um, people enough and they have to become entrepreneurs just to survive. Sure. That's usually a characteristic of developing countries. Um, it's a bit of a characteristic, I think, of uh, the United States at the moment um, because we have 40 million people unemployed and it's going to be very hard because um, the state is, is very weak in the United States. So we're not taking care of people enough. On the other hand, for established companies coming out of this, I do think many will come out of this stronger. Um, again, unfortunately, because many of them laid off a lot of people, so when they come out of it, they'll be leaner. Um, I do hope, um, I'm always very positive, I hope a lot of this disruption will lead to um, more senior leadership teams starting to understand they need to build more resilient companies because they were taken by surprise, um, and that is... I think the, the side that we can hope for, that they're going to see this as an opportunity to now seriously invest in building resilient companies. Yeah, you know, I was, as you're answering that, you know, it's good to get the flip side because I was kind of, you know, I think, you know, in love with the idea that, you know, this was a time where people, 
yeah, got laid off, but maybe that was the time that they could focus on the passion that they always had. But you're right, maybe it's it's starting from a point of of you know fragility and 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 you know urgency that you know might not be good for um, a foundation, I suppose. You know, um, I, I think it yeah. depends, right? If you're in Switzerland. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the support you get is pretty good. So it can be a very positive, I would support you in that. It's very positive depending on where you are in the world, right? So that's where luck comes in. Yeah. Uh, you happen to be unemployed now in Switzerland, right? You were, you were a banker before whatever, software engineer in a bank. That's maybe a, a good time to rethink. But then in other places of the world, take uh, um, developing nations or again, the, the U.S., it's also very hard, and that's what inspires me actually to, to help large companies innovate, is to create more resilient companies, because companies laying off people, that's, that's terrible, that's really, really hard for people um, anywhere in the world, because it, it puts you into, you know, it takes you out of stability. So I believe we can build more resilient companies to build better workplaces. I don't get excited about helping companies create more value for shareholders, why would I, right? But I do believe that we can help companies become better places to work. Yeah. And ultimately, take an example like Unilever with Paul Pullman. Right? He turned Unilever into a company that's focused on sustainability. Companies are a really can be a vehicle for good, right? Like the Salesforce founder is now really advocating um, that that um, companies can be a vehicle for good. They're really demonized now, but that's because the people in it maybe not doing what they should. But I think there's a generational change. I think I see more and more business people who are inspiring and business leaders. Again, Paul Pullman is one, right? The founder of uh, Patagonia is one. There are a lot of beautiful examples out there. We just need to make them more visible so business can become a force for good again. Absolutely. And, you know, you're about the third person that's, I've, I've, that's mentioned Paul Pullman in about – uh, ten episodes. So I got to try and Excellent. yeah, I got to try and get him on the podcast for sure. Um, he must be in the UK because most of them were in the UK. Is is, is he based in the UK? Uh, anyway. so he's a Belgian. Um, I don't know where he's living now. Um, but could be. I mean, uh, Unilever was a a, a Dutch uh, uh, UK company. So you got to hunt him down. He's. I think he's a very very inspiring business leader. And he's doing a lot of uh, a lot of good, a lot of good. Well, you know, thank you very much for your time today, Alex. Loved having the chat. And um, so, everyone, is this just how do how how does everyone get this copy of the Invincible Company and and what's next? I suggest yeah, go to our website strategizer.com. You know, get the free stuff. Um, they're, they're over. They're about a hundred pages. You can get for free. You can get a teaser, and then just go to whatever. You know, bookstore you prefer, and and get a copy. Um, again, I think this is mandatory reading together with Steve Blank stuff and and, and Reader McGrath stuff. But then everybody, you know, um, has to vote with their feet. So if you like what we're doing, uh, go get a copy, write a review. And if you don't, same thing. You know, vote with your feet. Tell us what you think, so we can do a better job. Man, I don't know. I'm giving you about a 50 percent promo on that one. I think you were. You gotta hype it up a bit. I'm gonna help you, right? You need to get a copy of, of the Invincible Company. All right. Thank you very much, Alex. And um, yeah, Great appreciate to your time Chris. today. Thank you for having me. Bye, bye, Chris. Thank you for tuning in. 
To keep up to date with all things Startup Grind, visit us at startupgrind.com or join us at any event in a city near you. Until next time, chase the vision and keep hustling.